Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Today we are going to be breaking uh, into a little bit of church history, as it were, in regard to the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And I really think that this is going to give us a a little bit of perspective, if you will, uh, in regard to why the church is the way the church is today. In other words, what I'm saying is why... Has she forgotten the very thing she has been commanded to remember? Take it a step further. Why is she celebrating with jubilation the abandonment of the very thing she was commanded to guard, to protect? What has happened? I mean, you think about it. Why the rejection? What has transpired Well, I'm going to tell you, as we dig into some early church history, you're going to see exactly what happened and what brought us to the point that we really are at today in the modern-day church. With that said, I I want to dig into some history here. And what better place to begin than at the New Testament? So we're going to go all the way back to the time, the apostolic age, the apostolic era, when the apostles are roaming the earth and they're spreading the gospel. And actually, I want to begin with no one better. There's nobody better we could start out with than with Yeshua himself. Amen. So let's take a look at this. In Luke chapter 4, And Yeshua came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Listen to this. And as his custom was, ethos in the Greek. And what that means is this was his manner of life. This was his manner. Go back to his childhood. He didn't have to ask on the Shabbat, on Sabbath, where Yeshua was. Everyone knew where he would have been. Because this is what he did as a child. This is what he did in his ministry. This this part right here is his ministry kickoff. This is where he kicks off his ministry. And how apropos is that? Because here you have Yeshua in the synagogue on the Sabbath... And he starts to declare himself to the world. And he tells everyone, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is not a coincidence that it happened in the synagogue on the Shabbat. Let me add something to this uh, to fully help you appreciate what we're reading. The synagogue and the Sabbath, I want you to understand there is a unique A very unique relationship between the two. The two are intertwined. Now, why do I say that? Well, when you understand what the synagogue was really about and why it was established, you need to know that it was established. The reason they built these is for the ecclesia, or in Hebrew, the kahal, the assembly. This was the place where the assembly was to meet. Well, what is the Sabbath? It is a mikra kodesh. It is a holy assembly. It is a holy convocation. So that's why you see throughout the diaspora, they have synagogues all over the place. And they would typically even, uh, they, they were seen, they're understood in Judaism as many temples. This is the place that you go to meet with God. This is the place that you would go to speak to God. And you would do this through prayers. But that's not all that happened in the synagogue. Then you also heard the word of the living God. It would come to your ears. This is, what the, this is what you would expect when you go to the synagogue. And so it's this assembly. And what is the Shabbat? Again, it's an assembly. And so these, the, what we're reading here, the nature of it, seeing synagogue with Sabbath and, and seeing this intertwined and read the New Testament. 
You'll see this over and over again, and actually you're going to see it today. I'm going to show you today. These two terms are intertwined. They're very, very meaningful. Because if you saw a Jew in the synagogue on Sabbath, you didn't have to ask. That that person is observing Shabbat. He has received that sacred calling, that holy convocation. That's why we see Yeshua. That's why it was his nature. It was his custom. It was his manner of life to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He knew what was commanded. There's no greater example we could have than Yeshua himself. Amen? Now, I understand most people will readily admit that most Christians will quickly come out and say, yeah, well, there's no question Yeshua kept the Sabbath. There are very few that I think would take up the argument that Yeshua himself broke the Sabbath. And I say very few because the argument is so flimsy and so weak. Uh, the majority of Christians today, and at least the ones that I've talked to, and in pastors, uh, professors, uh, anyone that's somewhat, in a, even in an intermediate level of understanding of the word, they just spend time at home and they read through the New Testament. Nobody would come up with the statement that Yeshua broke the Sabbath. Now, yes, I've heard it. I've heard it stated. But nowhere will you find that New Testament. It's very, very flimsy. The only thing you will find is that he was accused of breaking the Sabbath, but he returns that accusation with a rebuke. It is lawful to do good on the Shabbat, whether he's healing or whether his disciples are feeding themselves, like as in Matthew 12 and so forth. However, having said that, I, I do want you to understand that the arguments in regard to Yeshua and the Shabbat they get a lot, of, lot more sophisticated, if you will, in nature. Such as confessing the fact that, yeah, 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 Yeshua kept the Shabbat. But when he died and rose again, we entered into that dispensation of grace, which is exactly what happened with the resurrection of Yeshua. We entered into the dispensation of grace. Then Yeshua annulled the Sabbath. And so that's a much more sophisticated argument. No, Yeshua in his life, he never broke the Sabbath. But when he rose from the dead, that's when he annulled it. Again, the problem with that is, is we have something we call the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you can quickly refute that argument. It doesn't work because we actually see the exact opposite happening. We see no hint of annulment whatsoever. Actually, what we see is the early first century church believers embracing the Shabbat, going to synagogue on the Shabbat. And a great example of this is found in the book of Acts. The first example I want to show you is found in Acts 13. And there we're going to discover the apostle Paul, along with his companion Barnabas, they enter into the town of Antioch of Pisidia. And what do they do? Well, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's what they do. They do exactly what their master, what their rabbi Yeshua did. All right? Now, but here's the thing. This is, this is what's interesting. This, there wasn't just Jews present at the synagogue. There was actually Gentiles. And this is very important, especially for the modern-day church, to have this revelation to see how the first-century church actually ran the function of it, what were their practices, what were they accustomed to. So let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 42. The Apostle Paul, he gets done proclaiming the gospel of Yeshua. And this is the effect. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, what? The Gentiles, 
The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. What in the world is going on here? Notice the Gentiles are not at church on Sunday. They are in the synagogue on Shabbat. And it's such a powerful statement to see the Gentiles were begging. They were begging the Jewish people, we want to hear more about Yeshua. We want to hear more about salvation. We crave it, but when? When do they want to hear it? They ask that it might be preached to them the next Sabbath. On the Sabbath. That was the expectation. My, my. How things have dramatically changed. Look at what happens as we continue in the passage, the very next verse. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And what do we find? On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Understand, the men and women who were seeking salvation, Jews, Gentiles, together, They were seeking Yeshua. They knew exactly where to go, the synagogue, and exactly when to go there, the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Let me give you another example in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue, what? Every Sabbath. Think about that. Wherever. Now, keep in mind, Paul's in Corinth. Okay, we're all over the place. Paul is all over the place. And no matter where he's going to find the local synagogue. And where does he go on Shabbat? Observing Shabbat. He is going to the synagogue. And look at this. He reasons every Shabbat and persuades both Jews. Well, there it is again. And Greeks, Gentiles. What in the world are Gentiles doing in a synagogue on the Sabbath? Understand, this was the norm. This is how the first century church operated. Let me take this a step further. As I've mentioned, this was the expectation. What do I mean by that? Well, the apostles, now keep in mind, the apostles were commissioned by Yeshua himself to go proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. The apostles' expectation upon the Gentiles was that they would be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now let that sink down. Let that resonate with you for a moment. This was the expectation. And let me offer you some proof. As you come to Acts chapter 15, most of you are familiar with this because I've spent such a great amount of time on this passage. But in Acts 15... The Jerusalem Council meets what I would call the new Sanhedrin. It is made up of the apostles of the Lord God and other fellow believer, Jewish believers at this time. And a matter arose in Acts 15. We have this influx of Gentiles coming into Israel, being grafted in at an unprecedented rate. And all of a sudden, chaos begins to erupt over a matter of how the Gentiles are actually saved. A a, a faction of the Jews rose up who were Pharisees that believed in Yeshua. And they said, the Gentiles can't be saved unless they're circumcised. Cannot happen. That's the only way they can be saved. Well, the apostles, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't agree. In fact, they strongly contended against them for this very thing. 
And so what happens is the matter gets so hot, so debated, they take it to the Sanhedrin, to the Jerusalem council. And there they deal with the matter at hand. Now what's fascinating is, is the apostles say, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles who are coming in. They don't have to be circumcised as they come into the faith. This is not required because the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has circumcised them. But in addition to that, there are some specific commands that need to be rest laid upon them immediately. And what were they? Well, there were four commandments. Only four commandments that they were to immediately be addressed. And the first one was sexual immorality. And interestingly enough, the other three, they're all food laws. And they're not just any food laws, but they draw a perimeter around the entirety of what Torah talks about in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And the whole concept behind it was the first thing. Now, we know judgment begins at the temple of the living God. And as you look at these specific commandments that were commanded upon these Gentiles who are coming in, those commandments were exclusive. They were exclusive to purifying their personal temple. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, Paul says, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Meaning it's a, it's, a, it's a direct sin against the temple. So these commandments were geared to purify. They first must purify their temple. Obviously, they were to understand that they were to go on and they were to honor their mother and father. They need to know that they couldn't steal anymore, that they couldn't covet, that all these other commandments that we know that are in fact uh, there. But these first four were laid upon them. But here's what's interesting This is where the expectation of the Gentiles who are coming into the faith by the apostles was. This is the expectation that they would be in the synagogue on the Sabbath learning. And here's the evidence. As we get to verse 21, this is James. He he steps up and speaks and he says, For Moshe, Moses, Torah, the law, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, what? Being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, the apostles were saying, don't worry about the Gentiles. We're not going to lay upon them any great burdens because we know where they're going to be on the Sabbath. They're going to be in the synagogue and they're going to be receiving Torah. They're going to be receiving the prophets and they're going to learn. And they're going to just, just as the Jewish people did when they heard the voice of God. And what happens when you hear the word of God? It institutes the fear of the living God. Very, very powerful. I think it's safe to say we're in a little bit different place today. In the sense of modern day Christianity and her practices and what she's doing, we've come a long way. Most people uh, are there on Sunday. And they're not going necessarily to synagogues, they're going to churches. The question is, what happened? What has changed. I know what I read in the New Testament. I know what the first century church did. And I can also peer out and look at modern day church and see total contrast. What has happened? Well, you remember what Paul said? He gave a warning to us, to everyone he spoke to. And the warning was for a specific timetable, specifically after his departure. And meaning, and keep in mind, you know, the Apostle Paul was a latecomer. He's one of the later apostles that, that joined the apostles, okay? And so he's one of the last ones, the Apostle Paul was. He gives a very important warning. And listen to this warning. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves 
will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves. Understand, Paul is talking specifically to the church. His conversation is to the believers, to the body of Mashiach, to the, to the body of Messiah. And he says, they're going to come in. They're, they're, these men that are going to rise up, they're going to come from within. They're coming from within the church itself. Men will rise up, and what will they do? They will speak perverse things. Now, I highlighted this perverse things because I want you to understand, in, in the Greek, it's diastrepho. And while this uh, translation is fine and I conveys the idea... The problem with the word perverse is it, it sounds very overt. In other words, when they go out speaking perverse things, it's going to sound, uh, it, it gives the indication, the illusion that it's going to be so obvious. But that's not diastrepho. Diastrepho is more subtle. It's a lot more subtle in, in the sense that what it refers to is that they're going to go out and speak misinterpreted things. This is what it means. To misinterpret or to distort. And that's what these men will do. They will go out distorting for what purpose? To draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Do you want to know what happened? Why we can look at the first century church? It looks a lot different than the one we're looking at today. This is why. Exactly. Paul just told us. He warned us this would happen. He warned us the church would be breached. He warned that men would rise up out of the church, speaking diastrepho, speaking perverse things, distorted, misinterpreted things. And they would allure people down a different path. I'm going to tell you something. All you need to do is peer back into the early church and you discover Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. As we get out of the apostolic era, the apostolic era, as we get into the early second century, that's when you realize, frankly speaking, it was all out war. The gates of hell burst forth like a volcanic eruption. Think of this analogy of a volcano, a volcano literally erupting. And spewing this lava all over this place, all over the place. And that lava is all these different uh, fragmented ideas and concepts, theologies and doctrines that are foreign to the scripture. And as we get into the early second century, it starts to flow, literally starts to flow down the mountain. And what do you know about lava? I love this analogy because when you think about lava, it goes forth, number one, the gas it emits is totally poison. It's poisonous. And what do you see happen? It's scary. You watch those National Geographic shows or whatever you see. You see these documentaries and you see this red hot lava flowing down. It incinerates everything it comes across. Until what? What happens to the lava? Eventually it stops. Eventually it cools and it hardens. It becomes rock and it changes the landscape forever permanently 
And I'm going to tell you something. As you get into the second, the third, and moving into the fourth century, this is a volcanic eruption of all sorts of heresies, of all sorts of false doctrines. And then until you eventually get to the fourth century, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, where you can see the stuff begins to crystallize. It becomes hardened, where it forever changes the landscape. I mean, this is the reality. And let me offer you some evidence to what I'm referring to. As we come to the early 2nd century, around 130 AD, 140 maybe by some, even maybe 150, there was an epistle that was roaming around. Now keep in mind, you know, Revelation, the last one, this was thought to be written in 90 AD. Some want to pin it before the destruction of the temple. So we are post-canonical New Testament. Okay, so all these epistles that we condense, that we call inspired word of God, we're now after that. Well, there is an epistle, there's a lot of writings that we have that are extra canonical. Uh, most of the church is not familiar with them, but I assure you, the professors and the seminaries and the scholars are very familiar with these, including the one I'm about to show you. But during this time, there was an epistle known as the Epistle of Methodius to Diognetus. And Methodius is, this is just the Greek word for disciple. And so most think that, you know, this is not necessarily Methodius being a name. Uh, some say it's, it's both at the same time. But just in, in general, in Greek, it simply means disciple. You go through your New Testament, you read everywhere it says disciple, it's Methodius, okay? So here we have this epistle of Methodius, or you could say the disciple to Diognetus. And I, I, I do want to preface this. This is what's interesting is that during this time, 130, any of you know who was alive at this time? Someone that we talked about recently. Marcion. Marcion, right? Marcion is alive and well at this time. The Gnostics are alive and well at this time. Sabellianism is coming out. All of these things are starting to this volcanic eruption of heresies every which way. Well, let me read to you a passage from this epistle. And, and keep in mind, now obviously we don't call this scripture, but I, I do want to state this. Your scholars, your professors, when attempting to prove to you that the Sabbath is what the way we see the church embracing it or the lack thereof today can be fully supported. Because we can go back to early church history and we can show you that they didn't embrace it at all. And so the point that I want to make here is I want to take you back in history. I want to take you to the very things that they're reading so that you can have a deep understanding of what is really happening and what is really going on. I want you to see it for yourself because this is one of the ones that they will use. It's from this epistle uh, of Methodius to Diognetus. With that said, let me take you to it. And here's part of the passage, and I've highlighted some parts here. But as to the scrupulosity concerning meats... Now, I highlighted meats because this is actually referencing those things that the Jews, Jewish believers, not just Jews, Jewish believers observed. And that is the dietary laws, the things that, and I'm not talking about rabbinical laws, and most of Christianity confuses the two. Uh, I can even tell you discussions I've had where I told them, well, I, I, you know, I don't eat um, pig, you know, I don't eat swine, so I can't have pork or anything. Oh, you, you follow your Orthodox Jew or you follow the rabbinical laws. And I, I have to, you know, retort that that's not rabbinical. It's biblical. 
It's Leviticus 11. It's Deuteronomy 14. And so I want to just break here because it's important you understand the context of what's being conveyed. And here we see, but as to their scrupulosity concerning meats, meaning the biblical dietary restrictions, and their superstition as respects the Sabbaths, the Shabbats, and their boasting about circumcision. And let me stop here. Read Paul, read Romans 4, and you will be very clear that it is the seal, circumcision, it is the seal of the righteousness of the faith. In other words, Abraham's proof that he had faith in God came through the mark of circumcision. It was a mark. It was beautiful. You will find nowhere where Paul speaks negatively about circumcision. No. The Gentiles were not required who were standing and accepting Yeshua in their heart. And they were being anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh. What Paul actually says, they were being circumcised by the Spirit himself. They were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. But I want to stop here. You will find nowhere in the New Testament and thereafter were the Jewish believers, who were the first believers, stopped circumcising their children or that Gentiles who were born into the faith didn't circumcise their children. You will not find that. Authentically in, in, in the New Testament time, during this time. What you will find is just the opposite. All right? And their fancies about fasting. Which, can I remind you, the Apostle Paul lets his people know that he fasts constantly, 2 Corinthians 11. Oh, and by the way, just to add on to that, he actually commands the Corinthians and instructs them how to fast. It's peculiar. And the new moons, which are utterly ridiculous and unworthy of notice. Now, you don't have to be real astute to recognize that Methodius, he is lashing out here. But... It's a little different than being completely Hitlerian. And what I mean, simply just lashing out because they're Jews. What is he attacking? He is attacking the Jewish practices. Pay attention. All these practices, which, by the way, are completely and all established in God's word. Let me ask you something. Since when are biblical concepts that come directly from the mind and the mouth of the living God... When are they ridiculous and unworthy of notice? And yet, this is exactly what he's portraying here. Let me continue. As to their observing months and days, as if waiting upon the stars and the moon, and they're distributing according to their own tendencies the appointments of God and the vicissitudes of the seasons, some for festivities and others for mourning. Do you know what he's talking about here when he talks about some of their times and appointments are, are for festivities and the others for more? He's talking about the festivals. Some of the festivals, yes, they're joyous time and others are for mourning. Can you say Yom Kippur is a time of mourning? And so we're talking about the festivals of the Lord. Who would deem this a part of divine worship and not much rather a manifestation of folly? Think about that. That to observe the feast Passover, which, again, the Apostle Paul commanded the Gentiles to keep in 1 Corinthians multiple times, this apparently is a manifestation of folly. He goes on. I suppose, then, you are sufficiently convinced that the Christians properly abstain from the vanity and error common 
and from the busybody spirit in vain boasting of the Jews, but you must not hope to learn the mystery of their peculiar mode of worshiping God from any mortal. You understand what Methodes is promoting here? Total separation of Jew and Gentile. And I'm going to go back to my analogy You know, when we talk about a volcanic explosion and the lava coming out, there is a force. There's a force behind it, thrusting it forward and literally making the mountain explode. You know what? The force of the volcanic eruption of all these heresies, these various heresies that we see, whether it's Marcionism, whether it's this epistle, whether it's going to be the other thing, the other epistles we're going to look at. It's all about the division of the Christians, or what you would say, Gentile believers from the Jewish believers, the Messianic believers, a total breaking apart. And this is what Marcion was working so hard at the beginning. I'm going to tell you that is the force. That is the main thrust, the force that causes this explosion to, to land all of these different heresies that were flying all over the place. That is the force behind it. And it's very important that you pick up on that. Because out of this, you look at the church today, someone you say you're keeping Sabbath, the next thing they say, what are you, Jewish? I mean, think about this. Think about what has happened. Think about what Satan has done. Because he has done the unthinkable. Yeshua, we're told in Ephesians 2, came to break down the middle wall of separation. And as we get into the early second century, and that volcano exploded and it began to dry. Satan began to rebuild that wall to divide us when we're supposed to be one new man in the Messiah Yeshua. Let me take you to another work. And interestingly enough, this one was also written during the same time period. It's thought to be written uh, around 130 AD. And it is the Epistle of Barnabas. How many of you have heard of the Epistle of Barnabas? There's some of you who have heard of this. I want to show you what this epistle has to say because this is one of the favorites for scholars to quote in regard to proof that the early church, they didn't, they didn't keep Shabbat. And so this is where they draw from. It's interesting. They won't draw from the New Testament typically. Typically, I say, and we'll get into that later in the coming weeks. What they draw from is Methodes. What they draw from is the epistle of Barnabas. It's, it's, it's really, really fascinating to me. Well, I want to read to you a portion from this epistle because there's something that is absolutely monumental in regard to the Sabbath and the observance of it uh, and, and th- that is mentioned here. And it's going to give us a little bit of insight as to the support and the reasoning behind the argument that the modern-day church can abandon the Sabbath, that they should abandon the Sabbath, and they should celebrate it, actually. Now, before I show you what this has to say, I want to read to you some commentary on this epistle from Dr. Bart Ehrman. And I don't know if any of you are really familiar with Dr. Ehrman, but I can tell you he's considered to be one of the world's leading foremost authorities on the New Testament and early church history. Okay, this guy's been featured on all sorts of things. Uh, CNN, Discovery Channel, National Geographic. You watch documentaries on the early Christian church. There's a good chance you're going to see Mr. Ehrman speaking. I mean, he's kind of a go-to guy. Profound scholar, profound in Greek. Okay, and so he's widely respected. The most fascinating about 
most fascinating thing to me about Mr. Ehrman, and this, this plays a role in what I'm about to show you, he's not a believer. I know that sounds weird. He's a New Testament scholar. He's an expert in early church history, and he is not a believer. Now, what does that have to do with what I'm about to show you? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do. He has zero bias. He has no tendencies leaning towards Judaism. He has absolutely no affinity for Christianity and the sense of his faith. Certainly, he's made a business out of it, a job out of it, and certainly he is, he is a well-respected scholar. There's no question there. No bias. Absolutely none. I want to show you his commentary. I got several of his books on my shelves uh, for, for various reasons, one of which I'm going to show you. But um, I want to show you his commentary. He, he translated the book of Barnabas. But before he did that, he gives a commentary, and he's known to do this, uh, to give a nice brief commentary, just kind of as an introduction. I want to show you what he took away from this epistle, what he saw. And keep in mind, he's totally unbiased, not leaning one way or the other. This is what he says. The epistle of Barnabas was widely read in the churches of the second and third centuries. I want to stop. Something very important you need to pick up on is we just learned something about the epistle of Barnabas. It was moving. It was prominent. There were many Christians absorbing this epistle. Critical to understanding church history and what has happened. Some Christians thought it should be included among the books of the New Testament. Praise the Lord, it was not. And we move on. Although it came to be attributed to Barnabas, the companion of the Apostle Paul, the book itself is anonymous. Most scholars think it was written around 130 Common Era, possibly in Alexandria, Egypt, where it was especially popular. Now we come to my point and pay very close attention. The purpose of the book is to show that Christianity is superior to Judaism that Judaism, in fact, is and always has been a false religion. You feel the gravity of that statement? Here is Bart Ehrman, totally unbiased. He doesn't lean to Christianity. He doesn't have any bent on the faith. He doesn't lean towards Judaism. He reads this epistle, and this is what he comes up with. You think about it. It's always been Judaism has always been a false religion. Let me be very clear on something. There is no Christianity without Judaism. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. Let me explain this. See, unlike Islam, Christianity is not a new religion. It wasn't designed and contrived simply with the movement of a prophet. You read the Torah, you read the prophets, you read what I call biblical Judaism, which is exactly what the apostles were a part of. The apostles of Yeshua were involved in biblical Judaism. No, they didn't follow all of the rabbinical traditional. They were 100% biblical Judaism. And here's the deal. Their prophets, Moses, they prophesied a king of the Jews would come. And that is the one you are to serve. That is the one whose kingdom will be forever and ever. It will never pass away. And this is the one that will deliver you. This is what they were waiting for because it was prophesied of before. 
And when Yeshua came on the scene, the king of the Jews, they followed him. They merely embraced that which they were told was coming. Nothing changed other than the fact of the dispensation, the revelation of Yeshua. It was biblical Judaism continuing in its fulfillment. To say that Christianity is somehow something separate, if you have that understanding, you have been stripped completely of truth. Completely. Judaism, I tell you, biblical Judaism, and what the Jewish people wear is 100% authentic, and our faith depends on it. Think about why you confess Yeshua as Lord. I can confirm this because I read the Torah, I read the prophets, and everything they said that the Messiah would be, Yeshua came and fulfilled. Everything. I know him to be the authentic Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. Okay, so here's this introduction into this letter. And keep in mind, this is one of the favorites of scholars to go to, to take Christians to, to support abandoning the Sabbath. Listen to what it says. Do not continue to trample my court. If you bring fine flour, it is in vain. Incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths, I cannot stand. Now, I want to be very clear. He's quoting Isaiah 1 here, okay? He's quoting Isaiah 1, continuing on verse 6. Therefore, now listen, he has abolished these things. Now be very clear, he just said they have been abolished. The Sabbath, the new, those things are done away with in order that a new law of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, which is free from the yoke of compulsion, which means obligation, we're no longer obligated to keep the Shabbat, might have its offering, one not made by humans. So the writer is clearly stating here that Yeshua has simply, he has abolished the Sabbath. Now on the heels of what was just said, I want to jump ahead here to chapter 15 in Barnabas. Because there we're going to be given additional insight as to why we don't keep the Sabbath. He's actually going to come full circle on his argument. And this is what he says. Furthermore, concerning the Sabbath, it is also written in the Ten Words, meaning the Ten Commandments, which he spoke to Moshe face to face on Mount Sinai, and sanctify the Lord's Sabbath. With clean hands and a clean heart. Jumping to verse 6. Furthermore, he says, you shall sanctify it with clean hands and a clean heart. If therefore anyone now is able, by being clean of heart, to sanctify the day which God sanctified, we have been deceived in every respect. In other words, the commenter is actually stating that you cannot keep the Sabbath holy. You don't have the ability to sanctify it. Don't even think you can do it because if you do, you've been deceived. This is what he's saying. Let me tell you, it takes a lot of chutzpah to go out and tell somebody that they are reveling in deception when they are embracing the very things God has commanded us to embrace. Just think about that. And now he's going to go on to explain his position even further as we continue. Verse 8. Finally, he says to them, and this is he, meaning he's, the Lord is speaking, I cannot bear your new moons and Sabbaths. You see what he means? It is not the present Sabbaths that are acceptable to me, but the one that I have made on that Sabbath after I have set 
everything at rest. I will create beginning of an eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. In other words, I want you to understand what he just conveyed. Very seductive, very cunning in his presentation. And again, if you are not familiar with the word, if you are not familiar with the teachings of the apostles, man, this sounds really, really believable. What he is saying is this, that in this corrupted age, this age of lawlessness, any attempt to sanctify the Shabbat is an abomination to the Lord. The only one that's going to be accepted is the Sabbath in the age to come, the millennial Sabbath, when we are all, honestly, at a final rest. And this is what he is saying. This is what he is purporting. Now, obviously, I got to tell you, here's a perfect example. And this is scary because he's doing what? He's using scripture. See, it's when you see how crafty the enemy can be, uh, did or did not Satan use scripture against Yeshua? And did he or did he not totally pervert it? The very diastrephal that Paul was talking about, did or did he not misrepresent it? And what I'm telling you here is that what was just presented in the epistle of Barnabas, which is completely anti-Semitic and is completely anti-God, what was just presented was a total misrepresentation of Scripture. And I'm going to prove that to you. See, this is when we need to go to the Word and say, what was the Lord talking about? He clearly says, and I'm not debating the fact, it says that he hates their new moons and their Sabbaths. What is being said? Well, let's go there to Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. So here's the key. Identify the problem. Is the problem that the Jewish people were trying to do the very thing God commanded them to do? Such as keep the Shabbats, identifying with the feasts, making prayers. In other words, this this term of incense that is used here, this is a term referencing prayer. Is that the problem? The answer to that is no. What is the problem? I've highlighted it. That he cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. In other words, do not think that you're going to come before God embracing the Shabbat when you're living a life full of sin. It's not going to happen. The Lord will not accept it. It's perverse. It's unclean. One thing that we know, I mean, you read scripture, one thing that you realize, the Lord hates the mixing of that which is holy with that which is profane. He hates it. It is detestable. And I'm going to tell you something just for us, and we'll just kind of break, take, take a break from where I've been going. This is a really important teaching for us. We know about the Sabbath. Most of modern-day Christianity, they don't know. They're ignorant. And, and I don't mean that in, in, in a negative connotation. I mean that in a sense they simply don't know in an innocent manner. If they knew what most of you knew, they'd be in here. Most of them would be here, understand that, because they have broken hearts for the Lord. That I know for a fact. 
As I talk to a lot of them, amazing people scattered through all these different denominations from Catholicism to Lutheranism to whatever isms, Baptists and so forth. All these amazing people who truly are seeking the Lord the best of their ability. The teaching here for us is don't think for a moment that you are somehow justified in the sight of God. You're somehow better than anyone else simply because you have the revelation of the Shabbat and you come in here and you present yourself and you go through the Sabbath and you use all the nomenclature that we do in Messianic communities when in fact you are in bondage. When you are in total bondage, you have addictions, you have, you're living a life full of sin, you can hide it well, most people do. Don't think the Lord is going to receive your Sabbath. See, this passage is just for us to warn us. The Lord will not accept us. He will not um, uh, accept mixing the holy and profane. Now, there's something specific that I want to point out to you in regard to this passage in Isaiah 1. Something that conveniently Barnabas leaves out, but it is worthy of note, especially when attempting to draw out the meaning of actually what the Lord is saying. Does he hate his Sabbath that he created? I mean, really? Let's look at this. Going back to Isaiah 1.14. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Notice, very important, your, your new moons, your appointed feasts. Do you know you won't find this set up anywhere else in scripture where the Lord is commanding them to keep the Sabbath you will find it nowhere. Nowhere will you find, hey, you need to keep your Sabbath. You cannot find it. What do we find? Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep my. There's a dramatic difference here. Yours and his. Make the distinction. It's not a coincidence he uses this specific terminology. The only time you can find this type of terminology and saying it's your Sabbath. You know, another thing that kind of makes me cringe is, is uh, the various conversations I've had over the years. And I can tell you uh, with all honesty that some, sometimes Sabbath comes up and, and I'll say, well, I can't, you know, I can't go out there and do that because I, it's the Sabbath and I'll be at, I'll be at synagogue, I'll be at church on, on the Shabbat. I observe the Sabbath, so I, I can't do that with you. But I can do it on Sunday if you want, or Monday, or, or whatever. And the response is, oh, oh, that's your Sabbath. Well, my Sabbath is, on, and, and, and I have gotten more bold over the years to say, well, hold, hold on a second. Uh, just so you know, it's not my Sabbath. It's his. And so this is something that we need to make that decision. It is not our Sabbath. We do not design it. No man has the power to deem things holy and unholy. There's only one. It's the God of Israel, right? All things are made holy through Yeshua. So when the Lord says something's holy, that's it. But going in understanding the context of Isaiah 1, the context is when he says, keep my Sabbath, it's according to his ways. And so that's why when Yeshua comes on the scene and he starts laying out the reality of what is right to do on the Sabbath and what isn't, and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I will tell you what is lawful and what is not lawful. I mean, you just think about these things. Let me take it a step further just to show you that this passage was mutilated 
in the book of Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas. We need to draw logical conclusions. Here's the thing. Let's go back to verse 14. This is what we read. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. The whole passage altogether, this context, and actually when you go back to verse 13, he talked about incense. Your incense is an abomination to me. It is a reference to their prayers. And now we read, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. So it's all smushed together, talking about he hates their new moons. He hates their Sabbaths. He hates their prayers. Let me draw the logical conclusion. If I'm to come to the understanding that Barnabas did, well, now I have to say that we got to stop praying. He hates the Sabbath. He hates the new moons. He hates prayer. So the Christian would have to say, I got to stop praying. Do you see how absolutely, see, when you put this stuff up against the wall, it don't stick. It doesn't stick. It just slides right off when you let scripture interpret itself. But this is the danger. And this is what is going on in the early second century. And man, it gets nasty. As we continue on in the coming weeks, you're going to see how nasty things really get and how deceptive and how cunning things really are. We're actually going to be in the coming weeks, we'll be jumping back to Methodes. There was something there I didn't even stop and point out, but I'll draw it to your attention as we continue because you're going to see just a malicious, vicious twisting of the word. With that said, I want everyone to rise. We're going to do our battle cry. Hero Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we read, today... We will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. We will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.